Was building on the lecture versus coming daily under pressure. Working on the plot and the scheme. The true style trademark is at the edge of your dreams. I'm talking one. Hey guys, thanks for tuning in to another Startup Fan podcast. As you know, I'm stuck in Dublin and Graham is stuck over in London in lockdown. So how are you getting on over there? Not for much longer. Good old Boris is on the case. <laughs> well, well you don't know. <laughs> you don't know what's going to happen. We no. got we got our update there on when was it on Friday that we've been extended from the 5th to the 18th. Hmm. Yeah. Well, apparently well things apparently lockdown is is going to be relaxed a lot more in the uk it's been announced this sunday um so apparently you're allowed to choose 10 family in like an inner circle of 10 people and like friends and family that you're able to associate with and see and spend time with you're allowed to go into the office apparently um who wants to do that yeah well if people listen to this after sunday i could be completely wrong but this is just what i read on the bbc that you're allowed to go into offices but it's going to be staggered working hours and you're not allowed to share pens was one of the things which is interesting right Uh, so so we're going to find out on sunday but um i was saying to you uh on on a different call earlier that things are getting a lot more relaxed anyone that's based in london there's the traffic is nearly back to where it was right it's a lot of traffic a hell of a lot of people um subways back open full blown you know people queuing up in subway um kfc is back open again Uh, a members club beside me here uh, is planning to open its doors um on monday no matter what happens because they say they're going to go out of business unless they do with that being said i don't know who's going to go right who's gonna (laughs) um so that's another that's another uh, argument is will people even bother going so they might get in trouble for opening for no reason so it's going to be it's going to be interesting. So we're we're at a really interesting time where where things are starting to 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 lighten up a little bit, maybe. But we'll see. I feel sorry for the companies that are going to have to open and are only allowed work at a certain capacity. And what I mean by that is like restaurants and bars. Where I, I saw in America they they've opened some some restaurants and bars, but they're only allowed to open at twenty five percent occupancy. And I was talking to a friend of mine who owns a couple of bars here in Dublin, and he was saying that when they open, which might be 2021, uh, that they might only be able to open when they do at 50% capacity. And, you know, their overheads are still the same. Like everyone builds a business around what their overheads are and what they think they can bring in. And then they've got the profit in the middle. And he was there going, like, if I'm only allowed to sell, or I'm only allowed to have 50% of, of, what uh people who want to come to the bar and I, i'm only gonna have 50 percent of sales so it's what do i do instead of charging a fiver for a pint do you charge a tenner for a pint you know to make up the difference like i, I don't know what those companies are going to do i think it, it could probably be a mix of both right i think it could be a mix of maybe going out for drinks would be become more of a luxury than it was right and and maybe, yeah. the, maybe the price will go from five to 750 and then maybe it will flow down the other way of of, of a bar saying i'm only 50 percent ca- capacity i'm not paying 100 percent of the rent i was once paying um so it yeah. could come from both ends one thing for sure is it's definitely not going to be what we think it is and that's based on exactly what people thought they were going to do in lockdown which was read 100 books play piano as one of your friends said um do every single online course possible people have done the total opposite and so i really don't think that whatever we all think is going to happen is going to happen yeah i've been i've been reading books and playing piano with my feet at the same time 
Yeah, it. I know you have, but like the, the average Joe out there, <laughs> you know, it just, just isn't. Yeah. And you know, there's something I was reading actually today, right, that really, really stuck out when I saw it. I was real, what? Like, we all know how, how big Michael Jordan is. Uh, and the amount of money that he's he's made over the past. But do you have any idea of what his net worth might might be? If you were to take a stab in the dark, what do you think his net worth is? It's over. It's all, it has to be over a billion. It's two point one billion. Yeah. is what his net worth is. And since he started his uh, his, his endorsement with with Nike back in in the eighties, when no one else was, when Nike weren't even a, a player. When it came to the the NBA, it was all uh, it was it was Adidas, it was Converse, and then Reebok uh, joined, and all of those were well ahead of Nike. And the very first deal that anyone signed with Nike was Michael Jordan, and he signed uh, a contract with them for for half a million a year, which was triple anything anyone else had. And he to date has been paid one point three billion by Nike since he started working with them. And and I, I think in, in 2019, he brought in 130 million from, from Nike alone. Wow. I've been, have, have you been watching the, the documentary? Um, I haven't. Oh, it's really good. I, I want to go on and watch it. Like, this is what really got my, my interest when I saw that. Like, I know how, how successful Michael Jordan has been, and we all know how, what he's done with Nike, but I just had no idea that it was to that value. Yeah, it's 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 one of the most successful brands in, in in clothing ever. You know, um, it's what he's done is incredible. I've been watching; they release two episodes every week, um, for five weeks. It's it's really interesting so far. Um, just and, and Nike even signed him before he was um before he was signed to the NBA. They they yeah. spot they spotted him. Um, so it, it's an interesting one, but it's also interesting how Netflix are doing it because Netflix are known for binge watching. Right, dropping Tiger King every single episode, um, apart from the special, but every single episode all at once, and you binge watch it. They're starting to move to the more we're dropping an episode every week or or two episodes a week to to drag it out. I think it's been a bit more bit more successful for them, but it's an interesting shift. Yeah, I suppose to keep people uh, coming back. Speaking of big brands, who do we have on the show today? Today's show, we have Yoni Asia, the founder of eToro, which is in 140 countries, has 14 million users, and has raised $163 million to date. So let's get into the show. So Yoni, I suppose we'll kick off chatting about what everyone else is talking about these days, and that is, is lockdown and, and how things are going for you personally. Well, uh, it's been interesting times, uh, as the famous phrases. Um, so, you know, I don't think anybody of us six months ago would have expected for the entire West world, West, Western world to be locked down and quarantined to their houses. Uh, we're basically all under house arrest. Um, but uh, frankly, um, and, and I'm very thankful for that. Personally, I've I've had you know, good times with the family. So I'm a father of four. Um, I think uh, my youngest is two and a half. He has, uh, in the last two and a half years, I think hasn't seen me as much as he has seen me in the last two months. Uh, so, so we're having a lot of family fun and family time and watching with the kids, all of my old movies from Karate Kid uh, to Back to the Future and Princess Bride. Uh, so taking the Jesus, time, that's an old one, Princess Bride. Yeah, yeah, I'm uh, I'm an old millennial. 
so so I think everybody got like a bit of a break from the regular running around for the past 15 years. I've been twice a month at least flying abroad uh, to, to one of our offices or business meetings or conferences. Um, I haven't been flying for two months now, so that's a very big change. Um, so, so personally, I think this has changed uh, a lot in the work-life balance for the past two months. Uh, we're very lucky at eToro that um, the business is doing very well at this time. So people that all around the world that are working from home and staying at home are actually trading significantly more uh, and uh, interested in the markets significantly more as the markets are very exciting at the moment as well. Um, and uh, in eToro today, we're 850 employees, where 770 of them now are actually still all working from home. Um, and the only ones who are actually every day at the office are, are guys in uh, China uh, who were the first to go into the lockdown and the first to also come out of the lockdown. Uh, so I was very uh, inspired by the great work of all of the people in eToro uh, that managed to move our day-to-day -day operations uh, to working from home and everything works not only smoothly, but the business is now three, four times higher than it was six months ago. And we've managed to do that scale while working from home. Personally, Yoni, do, do you want to see things stay as they are to a certain extent, right? As in, you can't hop on a plane twice a month and travel. So you're obviously doing that through Zoom, um, Skype, Google Hangouts, whatever video platform you choose. Do you think you want to stay the way it is? Have more family time, uh, you know, not be as, as, you know, rushing around the world, building the business because you can do it from home? Or do you, do you want to go back to the way it was? It's a, it's a great question. I think everybody's talking about the new normal. It has become a phrase to try and analyze what will be the new normal. Um, my father, uh, we just spoke over the weekend, he said everything will go back to normal. So the new normal will be uh, sim very similar to the old normal. I think something was, will change. Again, it, it, it varies a lot between different businesses. Personally, I think I'm going to travel more now. Um, so so I, I am enjoying being more with my family. Um, and I've enjoyed uh, having lunch with my kids uh, a lot this month. Um, but, you know, we're, the, the normal changes very fast. So it's very hard to think where we're going to be six months from today. And what decisions can you make under this scenario that in six months from now won't be relevant. So this is something I've learned uh, very uh, early on uh, is that the status quo, it can change very, very fast and people will adapt to it. So right now, suddenly we've all adapted to the new status quo, which is staying at home, no restaurants, no movies, no parties, um, no bars. I think that we will adapt very quickly once everything reopens to going back uh, to do everything that we've done before. So while we've ad adapted very quickly now and even enjoying it, we'll adapt very quickly also to the new normal. 
how different is it going to be really depends on sort of, I call it market conditions, although it's not exactly market conditions, but I'm just very doubtful air flights and air travel will return to be the same within the next six to nine months. Um, just the math doesn't make sense. Um, I'm, that's going to be the last thing that's going to be restored. Uh, but a lot of the other things I hope will be restored, restaurants, uh, bars, movies, etc. Yoni, you've probably seen more of an insight than most when it comes to what the new normal will look like. As you said, you've got employees in China. What was it like when they first got back to work and what has changed over there? So it's quite interesting because it's hard for us to grasp. Like in our all hands meeting, I'm asking uh, the managing director of Asia, who's based in Shanghai, to update us about, you know, what's at the end of the tunnel. And they're generally saying that, you know, it's, it's, it's behind them. They've all returned to work. The bars and coffee shops are now open. Uh, air travel within China uh, has opened. Uh, there's still no conferences or mass gatherings, but I would say that they're 90, 95% back to normal. Um, so, so that would, in theory, suggest a lot of other places will revert to the same. But I think, again, we have offices in 12 different countries. Each of them reacted to this very differently in a very different pace. Uh, so China w- was very swift and very aggressive with the lockdown, and it seemed yeah. to have succeeded. Um, I think uh, we've seen Israel relatively be uh, very fast and also very, um, again, it's, you know, p- politically, um, it's political, but, you know, they've been tracking basically every single person with uh, ca- catching corona and tracking his entire epidemiology and who he met and where they've met. Um, and there's a lot of political discussion about free- rights and freedom, etc. Um, uh, we've seen the U.S., people in the U.S. basically going to quarantine um, on their own. So they were actually the first to go to quarantine, not because the government told them to quarantine, just because they said, okay, there's a chance of us getting a disease out there. We're we're moving to working from home. So it was one of the first offices we had that actually switched to voluntary working from home. And then suddenly everybody just stayed at home. Uh, And then we saw the lockdown sort of gradually going through Europe. And then I think the last one in in the Europe area was the UK, and then a week after Australia. So we really saw how this government reaction and policies change from one country to another, and how culture is a bit different, whether the employees or or people are asking and, and doing the changes, or are they just waiting and adhering to government policy? Yeah. It's an interesting one that you got to see it, you know, at a, at a global scale, with, because obviously eToro being a, a global business, it's really interesting. We, we will probably get onto that a little bit later and, and talk a, a bit more. But just for, for the context, we, we wanted to chat a little bit about pre-eToro and what Yoni was doing pre-eToro. You, you had a business called Y-Tech Communications. Is that right? Y-Tech? Am I pronouncing yeah. that right? 
Yeah, it's uh, it's actually the, the 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 name of the product was CD Ride, mm. uh, CD Ride. So I, I was I'll, I'll go a bit prior to to that. So I I've always been a fan of technology in the market. Started both very very early on. Um, I started trading and, and programming when I was about thirteen. Uh, then I. Uh, joined the army as a programmer uh, uh, and a, what's called a PC boy, so self-trained, uh, 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 basically tech guy. Um, and then I met uh, a, a couple of really great guys uh, at the. Uh, it's basically the technology unit of the intelligence corps. Uh, so we, I met there a couple of great guys, and, and we started just as we finished our army service. Uh, we started developing video cameras and installing them on roller coasters in parks. So uh, Disney, uh, Universal, um, Six Flags, uh, Paramount. Uh, so we basically were installing video cameras on each of the seats in the roller coaster. And when you went down from the roller coaster, you could have seen a video of your entire ride edited with like external footage uh, and, and buy it for something like $20. Wow. So Very cool. Yeah. yeah. So that, and, and back then I, I, I even flew more. So I flew for longer duration. So I would fly for the entire summer. I spent, I think in, in Toronto, there's a six flags there. I spent there, I think about a month and a half uh, just installing cameras on the roller coasters with like the, transmitters and receivers it's all based on wi-fi and actually standing in the booth and selling cds so so what was the the series of events that led you to to set up etaro i've i've uh i did my um computer sciences masters uh and a part i had work done on visualization of uh investments and financial services uh, and at the same time, my older brother, Ronen, finished his uh, a master's in the Royal College of Arts in the UK and has done some work on user uh, experience uh, for Bloomberg uh, as part of his degree. And when we started sort of talking about the space, uh, as we were both sort of working on visualizing financial investments... Ronen always used to make fun of me that I have an accountant uh, fetish, that I sit in front of sort of multiple charts and newspapers and Excels uh, sort of drowning in data. And when he came back from Bloomberg, seeing everybody with the screens, he said, listen, how do people like handle this environment with this horrible user experience? Uh, of course, like the market sounds super interesting, um, talking about the markets and what's happening in the markets is super interesting. But when you look at the environments at the user experience, it's just it looks like a horrible user experience of people just working with these huge excels and numbers. So we started brainstorming about how can we simplify the access to financial markets? How can we make it more enjoyable uh, working within the financial markets? And we started uh, basically hacking around the user experience from social elements to uh, the visualization of how the trading platform looks like. Uh, and I think from there, you know, we started the process of building a demo, going to investors. Uh, our pitch originally was 
making uh, finance fun. Um, and then sort of it, it matured into opening the global markets for everyone to trade and invest in a simple and transparent way. So really from day one, it was about how do we make the financial markets more accessible, more simple, more engaging, more fun uh, for everybody to be able to trade and invest in a simple and transparent way. What what was it like when trying to close your first round of funding? Can you can you remember what it was like? Was it difficult? What what year was that? So this was two thousand and six seven. Uh, so we closed the first round of funding January two thousand and seven. Um, we met quite a bit of people. Uh, so uh, it was a one point seven million dollar seed round, which is back then was considered a very big round. Uh, times have changed since 2007. Um, and I think we met probably 40 to 60 different investors. Uh, we met a lot with uh, high-tech entrepreneurs and the owners of the VCs. So actually the first round of financing was led by really good high-tech entrepreneurs and uh, um, high, and very seasoned sort of like seed investors in Israel. Um, and, and I remember, so one thing I remember very clearly is how adamant people were about telling me that the idea is, is not good and that it's impossible to try and build a financial services company out of Israel. So this is pre-fintech, right? So the term fintech didn't, uh, wasn't, you know, wasn't a term back then. Uh, and most financial services companies are based in Hong Kong or London or uh, or New York. So most of the people within the finance industry automatically thought that it didn't make that you can't build what is now considered you know a, a large scale. We have 14 million users fintech company out of Israel. Mm. Well, you prove them wrong, right? Yeah. So. <laughs> so so, so very luckily, also my my father was a founder of a CEO of a software company, and back in the early '90s, when he uh, raised money for his software company, he went to the Silicon Valley, and they explained to him that you can't export software out of Israel. So, so you know, it's it's the world is very cyclical, right? So Israel became a giant in exporting software products to the world. Uh, and now, uh, gradually, I Israel is becoming also a significant player in the fintech space. Yeah, without a doubt, it, it definitely is. How has your role changed from, from the first funding round right up to the most recent funding round? I think you're $162 million in funding to date. Is that right? Yes. Um, it's, it's a very good question. And there's a very, very different view of how people look at management um, in, in the role of managers. Um, so, so I would say there, there's three parts which are, are quite consistent across time um, is one, always make sure, uh, you know, the business is growing um, and always make sure uh, that we have the right investors uh, and right partners in place uh, the second is making sure uh, you know you have the right people in in the right seats on the bus uh, from the good to great book. So you know we're constantly evolving and making sure uh, we adapt the organization 
and that we do organizational changes when needed to adapt to the size of the company. So this year, we'll probably end up hiring uh, over 150 people and grow to roughly 1,000 people worldwide. Uh, and that's obviously very different than managing 200 people, uh, uh, which we were three years ago. Um, and, and then the, th the third one, and that really sort of, I think, changes between different managers is I a bit view as my role as uh, uh, the headless chicken. So I run around and I have a, a very high level understanding uh, of a lot of the details in every different department in eToro. So from marketing to trading, uh, to product, to development, uh, to compliance and regulation. But I have also amazing managers who really don't necessarily need me around them at all. So they manage their domain uh, exceptionally. So the headless chicken concept is basically I would uh, constantly go around um, working with the managers, trying to figure out wh who needs my help or what change do we need to do in order to grow. Hmm. What does what does a typical, say, let's say pre-lockdown, right? Because we see you know, founders running massive multinational businesses. And a lot of them have days that are are very structured, right? The typical, I wake up at 5 a.m., I do yoga at 5.30, I read at 6 o'clock, I, I go for them. a run. <laughs> <laughs> Us too. <laughs> what, what does your, because a lot of, I, I think Mark and I spoke about this on a, on a previous show before. We get the feeling that a lot of people say that because they think that's the right thing to say, Right. So I, I wake up at about nine. Um, no kidding. AM or PM. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, and, and I never do yoga. So again, I think there's d different types of personalities. There's also, so I, I am intrigued in different types of personalities and I do have great people here at eToro that do wake up at, at 5 a.m. I'm just not a great mornings guy. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm very cranky in the morning. So, uh, and, and I'm also not a very structured guy. So I am what, uh, you would call an innovator or, um, a, a fire starter. So while I do have structure to my day, both pre-corona and post-corona, so post corona is just more 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 of these fifteen meeting fifteen minute meetings with everyone, but I, I try to be consistent in meeting every single one of my managers uh, at least uh, once a week for basically a weekly, which is quite structured with a document sort of going over the bullet points of follow ups. We're very consistent in having a, a weekly management meeting where basically everybody's updating everybody uh, on progress, problems, and plans, uh, and then doing uh, one or two presentations uh, where somebody would give a deeper dive, like a 30-minute plus 15-minute Q&A uh, across the board. And then the rest of my week, I, I, other than the one-on-ones management meeting and a couple of sort of specific like um, domain meetings uh, are, are sort of filled in by meeting requests, um, just relatively ad hoc. You said fifteen-minute meetings. Were they were they longer before 
the the coronavirus because we do hear that the whole thing with everyone working remotely now is a lot of the time what drains people is, is people you know and where they're actually able to work remotely work from home they're able to get more done you know and they're not being pulled into meetings left right and center do, do you find with the the meetings you're having online that they're they're shorter quicker and more to the point yeah i we get that a lot now so first of all uh israelis are really bad at getting on time to a meeting uh, but not getting on time to a Zoom meeting is very embarrassing and weird. So people do get more on time to meetings and, and meetings do end more on time, definitely. Meetings are shorter um, and more efficient. Um, and, and I think in general, what, we, what a lot of companies did, so I think there's a lot of similar modus operandi between a lot of companies, both you know, pre-corona and post-corona. So I think a lot of startups would have once every month an all-hands meeting um, and uh, once a week a management meeting. And I think a lot of companies moved to every day. So we do now every day 30 minutes management meeting. So we moved from once a week to basically Monday to Thursday, right? So you actually get more time, but a shorter period of time with managers because you don't meet them in the office. And we're doing all hands once a week or every two weeks, which, by the way, I think is really great for uh, all of the offices worldwide because suddenly everybody's equal. So all hands used to be physical. Everybody were sort of together in this one hall in Israel and one hall in Europe and the UK and the US and Australia. But whoever spoke, which is me and mostly in Israel, sort of got a better uh, sort of situation. And now suddenly we have these Zooms with 700 people, but everybody's also equal on Zoom, which is, which is quite interesting. So we get a lot of feedback from the global offices that actually work has become more global, more global or, or easy, more easy for the global offices because suddenly when everybody's on Zoom, and you don't have five people in an office in, in one place and then just one person in another place, then the, the dialogue becomes actually friendlier, easier, and more equal. E eToro is obviously a massive brand, and you've really done your work when it comes to the marketing and the brand awareness piece. And I see in, in 2018, there was a sponsorship with, with seven UK premiership teams. How did how did the reaction with, with that first um, come about? Like, and what, what type of reaction did you get from the, from the teams? Like, was it a case of you'd reach out to one and they said they'd come on board or work work with Etaro if you got more on board or or what way did that work? And how did you come up with the idea to to go after the Premiership? So a lot of credit goes to our UK team and to our sports marketing team. Uh, so th for us, uh, the, the UK office basically uh, uh, runs all of the sports marketing worldwide and as you can expect very biased towards premiership league so i'm 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 not a big um expert in any sports uh so it's really the credit all goes to to the team uh who managed to do it um i think in general all sports teams around the world. So now I've learned more about sports marketing because we're sponsoring uh, nine different football teams. We sponsored UFC. I got offers to sports to sponsor Formula One. 
NBA teams were sponsoring Gael Monfils, a great tennis player uh, 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 from France. Uh, were sponsoring a couple of cars in different races uh, and even a, a MotoGP uh, bicycle uh, team. So, so I've learned about sports from sports marketing. Um, I, I think it all comes down to this is the business model of a lot of the both foot club clubs in the premiership or any football club. Um, and it's a big part of the business model of any sports team and sports player to get sponsors. And it's all about figuring out sort of the rights and the benefits and how much does it support the brand, the local audience? Does it bring a new audience? Um, so every deal needs to be analyzed specifically the concept going with seven clubs was uh, let's try and and get presence at, so everybody can see us all the time. Almost in every game, you could see us on the leads. So that's the concept of sponsoring multiple teams on a digital sponsorship, right? So digital yeah. sponsorship is uh, is obviously less significant than a shirt sponsorship. But you would never go on a shirt main sponsorship with multiple clubs. So it's like different strategies for different effects of marketing. Interesting. And, and obviously, the question always arises in marketing um, about, about ROI, right? And a lot of people say, you know, putting links in to track you know, signups. And obviously, you, for the most part, you can't do that sponsoring you know, Premier League football teams. What is it just a generic spike? In, in users or what way when, when a game is happening you would monitor a spike of users what way could you could you kind of match up ROI with the spend with something like that it's very very hard um, and, and it's really not about ROI driven marketing sports sponsorships um, so, so it's very hard to try and look at a short term ROI with sports marketing and, and we did constantly try and, and we keep on trying but i don't think that's necessarily the way uh, to measure sports marketing so sports marketing is significantly more about awareness than about immediate performance in general while some performance marketeers would say that brand marketing is simply marketing with no performance I think, obviously, uh, you know, the, the holy grail of marketing is have no marketing, right? It's just you, you launch a product, you don't do any marketing, and you get a gazillion million people onboarded. Um, then, you know, and that's very, very rare um, on its own. And then usually, even if that happens at some point, you'll start doing marketing. And the more your product is viral the less you will later on be able to do performance marketing, the more you are an ROI-driven performance marketing company, the harder it will for you to actually become more of a brand or, or viral. But the truth, truth is it's all somewhere in between. So uh, marketing is about how do people, what's people perception of your company? Are people familiar with your brand? Um, when you ask them, top of mind around the various products that you offer? Do they come up with uh, the name of your company? 
Um, and that's all about repetition and product market fit. Um, so we do believe that sports marketing is a good way to increase awareness and to create repetition of brand. And if somebody has seen our uh, ad or lead uh, in a football match and then later on sees uh, our uh, ad on Google or our YouTube, uh, they usually do the connection either consciously or subconsciously that they've seen us before. And that's something very old, old school marketing. Old school marketing is repetition, 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 right? So, and if the creative is good, it keeps on repeating in your brain without us needing to spend money on 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 that repetition. Yeah, of course, because I think a lot of people kind of find it difficult to to take in the whole brand awareness piece over the over the whole ROI and being able to track an instant sale or or sign up. Can we talk a little bit about as you, as we talked at the beginning we, where you had raised one hundred and sixty two million to date. You've you've acquired a couple of co- uh, companies along the way. One being uh, Fermo, another one being Delta. When it comes to to raising money uh, and closing a round of funding, do you tell some of the investors that what you're looking to do is acquire this company, or you're looking to acquire that company? And and what kind of way do they look at that? And also, I, I've always been interested in in. in seeing other people's opinions on what it's like when acquiring a company, what the initial uh, contact is like, like, what way do you reach out to them? Is like, when do you have the first meeting? When do you get involved? Um, so first of all, you know, we're very communicative with our uh, investors um, uh, about sort of our plans to scale. So we, we believe the opportunity of bid, building a, a large-scale global digital investment platform uh, for uh, uh, millennials and millennials is, is uh, you know, an extremely large size of opportunity. So we could build a fifty billion dollar market cap company, uh, and in order to to think big and to scale. Uh, at some point, you need to think not only of sort of building it yourself, but also on buying and consolidating. And at some point, what we're seeing now in fintech is the re-intermediation of a lot of the services. So we've seen a process where first the banks were disintermediated, right? So suddenly you do your FX transfers with TransferWise, and you do your uh, trading and investments with eToro, uh, and maybe your ISA with uh, Money Farm, uh, and your debit card is uh, suddenly uh, a, a Revolut. So each of these services that traditionally were in a bank got disintermediated by just a much better product experience. So each of the great fintech companies just built great products uh, that are much better than the traditional incumbents products. What we're seeing now is a process where a lot of these services are being re, uh, sort of reintegrated. So we're looking both through partner, strategic partnerships uh, and through acquisitions at how can we give a more holistic experience to our users so they eventually don't need their old bank at all. So they can use all of the services frictionlessly uh, on their mobile with eToro 
uh, either through partnerships or through our own products or through acquisitions. So when you were thinking about the world in that view, you understand that acquisitions are a part of a modus operandi, again, of a company at a certain size. In order to scale, you need to be able to think about that. So we have a corporate development group in eToro who basically seek up opportunities in various uh, aspects of the business. So we operate in 100 different countries, um, sort of roughly we'll divide it to Europe and the UK or Americas, EMEA and Asia. And in each of them, we need the set of capabilities to be able to eventually offer a uniform, uh, sort of a unified experience across uh, eToro, which is being able to invest in the global markets, uh, in, in equities, in commodities, uh, in cryptocurrencies, to be able to see, follow, and automatically copy top traders from all over the world, uh, and to be able to easily send and receive uh, digital assets, um, potentially overseas, and to your friends. So, so when we look at all of these areas of, of trading and investing, we're basically ma- mapping out the different players, and then we're reaching out to them. We're, we're creating that dialogue um, and sometimes it's the corporate development team. And in some cases, it's, it's just actually me on personal relationships of people that I've met uh, across, uh, across time um, in different uh, conferences uh, and events uh, in the past 12, 13 years. Amazing. What was it like breaking into, breaking into America? That, that happened last year, I think, with 2019. You guys launched in America. Is that right? Yes, um, it's still, uh, you know, in great progress. We've launched our crypto trading platform. Um, I think Q1 uh, ended up, I think, uh, about 100% higher than Q4. Um, and we're seeing now uh, significant growth in the US, especially now with the crypto sort of uh, hyping up again around the ha- the Bitcoin halving. Um in the US, we, you know, our core business really started in Europe and the UK, where we're already sort of a significant brand in the US. We're just starting out. Um, and obviously, the opportunity there is huge. Uh, and we plan to launch more of our products to get a, a basically a unified experience in the same way that we have today, both in Asia and in Europe, to build sort of the complete product uh, in the US as well. Uh, over the course of the next six to nine months. You have, I think it's 10 million plus users at the moment, and you were very early to market with, with your product, with, with eToro. How do you feel about other fintech companies at the moment adding trading as an ex- uh, to, to others? Like, I'm, I'm just for argument's sake, you've got companies like Revolut adding trading options to, to, to what they're doing with the bank. Like, how does that affect you? Because I know, are you so far ahead of the game now where you're in about 140 plus countries and a lot of the time, the, the, the ones that might add something aren't in that many countries? Is it a threat? First of all, I'm very happy to see more companies encouraging people to access the financial markets. So in general, again, I think the, the generational uh, shift of wealth uh, and uh, the amount of people uh, within Generation Y who are going to go into trading and investing 
on a global scale is so vast, there's definitely place for multiple participants in the market. And the more players sort of create that narrative, it actually creates a good feedback for the entire ecosystem. So when you have companies uh, promoting commission-free stock trading, like we're promoting at eToro, then more people understand that they need to switch into a platform that's commission-free because they're still paying fees in their bank. So the majority of people are still paying fees trading stocks, despite the fact that they can actually trade for free on eToro. So if more companies are doing that and shouting that, and eventually our product is better, then it actually sort of creates like brand marketing for the ecosystem uh, or for the industry, which is a very good thing. So I would generally say we're happy to see more companies offering investment products um, and opening the markets for more people. So if you have a dream and our dream is to open the global markets, um, sometimes sometimes people told me, uh, you know, if you have a dream and that dream comes true, then it doesn't matter who actually executed on it. So you should be happy that the world is progressing in our vision and in our dreams. Um, and I think it definitely also shows the potential of the entire ecosystem. How are people's trading habits changing? Obviously, with the pandemic being quite an obvious one, people are at home. People may have a bit more time on their hands. Um, some people have been have been furloughed, so obviously yeah, they, they, they can't work for their company. Are people trading more frequently? Is there, is there shorter trading patterns going on instead of longer trading patterns? What, what have you seen in general? First of all, we've seen significantly more trading activity. So we've seen an increase of anywhere between 200 to 400% over the past two, three months uh, in clients' activity. So people have been significantly trading the opportunities in the market. They've been trading across more hours. So uh, in the past, we would have seen sort of spikes at 6 p 5 p.m. to 8 p.m., now suddenly we're seeing people trading across the entire day. Again, there's 24-7 trading on eToro, so they can trade anytime. And we're definitely seeing them trade more actively across the entire day. Um, and I think we also have seen more people sort of trade in between different assets. So we, we've seen people who came into crypto and started trading stocks we saw people who came to trade stocks and then suddenly with everything happening in the oil market started trading oil. So I think we're seeing more people interested in the markets coming into eToro opening accounts. Those people we see at roughly double the amount of time uh, in front of the screen, in front of the platform, uh, both in hours point of view, time point of view. So generally, working from home is is good for the brokerage industry. And just before we finish up, because I'm conscious of time here, and I know you're busy, what what can we expect from from eToro in the future? Because you, you, as we said, you're in a lot of countries at the moment. You you've broken into into America. What is next? We're constantly launching new products, uh, and it's really about what you can expect to us is to constantly keep launching new products and services to help people 
uh, access the financial markets and trade and invest in a simple and transparent way. Uh, we'll add more products like fixed incomes and stocks for more markets, uh, more copy portfolios. We just launched, for example, uh, a copy portfolio uh, from uh, basically all of the great oil companies around the world, uh, which have suffered very, very harshly recently. So we're creating a lot of new investment products uh, as copy portfolios. Um, and, and I expect our popular investors to become more and more famous and in uh, uh, talking podcasts as well. Well, that's pretty much all we have time for today. A huge thank you to you, Yoni, and your team for helping us make this happen. It was a great podcast. And thank you so much for the audience listening. Make sure you do hit that subscribe button and do leave a review if you enjoyed it. It really, really helps us out. And keep your eyes peeled for the next podcast and have a great day. It's one on one shot, now the future is yours.